Welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. This is our weekly exploration of all things mystical. A great way to start your week. And when I say yours, I mean mine. It's a great way to start our week together, studying some Kabbalah and getting inspired as we enter the, um, the chaos and the fray of the world, which actually takes me to a theme that is very timely. Yesterday in the Torah portion, which was Bishalach, we read about many things, including the falling of the manna, which, unlike the snow in Atlanta, was very predictable, and it actually fell every single morning. They walked outside. There was, it says, the, ground, the desert ground was covered with like what looked like white, crystal, white crystalline coriander seeds, something like that. It was like a white frost, and they collected the food, with one exception, every day except for Shabbos. And it's brought down in the good books that that's because on Shabbos, on Shabbat, it was the blessing for the rest of the week. Shabbat, the, the manna did not fall. It fell on Friday, a double portion for Shabbat. But on Shabbat, when it didn't fall, it was the, it was the source of the blessing for the rest of the week. And so it is with us today, that Shabbat is the source, the rest Right, the, the, the cessation, the, the ceasing that we do on Shabbos, the break from the, from the grind that we enjoy on Shabbat, on Shabbos, is what energizes us for the rest of the week. I mean, think about any sabbatical, right? We pause, not for the sake of pausing necessarily, although that's also, it's also beneficial, but also for the sake of rejuvenation. I only mention that because what better way to begin the week than with further rejuvenation after Shabbat, after rejuvenation, before we begin, hopefully, you know, don't get too entrenched in the work, we have the opportunity to do Kabbalah and coffee. So that's what we're doing here uh, Sunday mornings at 9.30. So I want to begin with a little bit of history in the Hasidic movement. I wrote this up in the email last night, very briefly. I want to take you a little bit through some of the underpinnings of the Hasidic movement. First of all, explain a little bit about the Hasidic movement, which will be a big piece of today's class, but also talk about the history of what kind of um, gave rise to that movement. So, and, and here's a bit of an introduction. In Judaism, there was always a very primary or prime emphasis, primary emphasis, either way, based on education. You, you, I'm, I'm sure you know this, or you, you might know this, but in Judaism, education, not to the exclusion of anyone else, but you're saying in Judaism, education is a really big deal. In fact, in the Shema prayer, which is the most central Jewish prayer, um, and it's what we put on the scroll in the mezuzah, it's what we, roll, it's what we put on a scroll and, and wrap up inside the tefillin, the phylacteries, the, the Shema includes the words, Vishinantam Levanecha, which means that you shall teach them the words of Torah, Levanecha to your children. There's a mitzvah to not only know, but to teach. In fact, we had once, not that long ago, a Torah studies class in which we analyzed the fact that the mitzvah of Torah study is actually derived from the mitzvah to teach the child Torah. The Torah doesn't actually say explicitly, you shall learn Torah. But it says you shall teach your children from where we learn 
that if you want to teach someone else, you have to know, right? You can't teach what you don't know, which means that if you're teaching that you need to study on your own, and therefore there's a mitzvah to study Torah. <coughs> we'll see. So what's the point? Education is a fierce Jewish quality. It's a fierce Jewish quality. Value. And I would say this. At a time, there were times when in history, in world history, in the world, education was not a thing that was to the, for the masses. We're talking about, let's say, the Dark Ages and other times when things were really, you know, education was not really happening. Consistently, <coughs> in Jewish communities, education was a primary feature. The first notion of public education, free public education, the first recorded instance of free public education exists in the Talmud with Jewish education in the Jewish community. There's no earlier source for this notion of, of, of education. However, and this is a big piece of this, there came a time Excuse me, there came a time when education wasn't as freely available, right, Judaism gives to the world, as freely available as it once was. And this happened due to a lot of societal pressures, economic pressures, persecution. When I say persecution, I mean pogroms, and massacres of Jewish communities. Let me take you back to Poland. This is going back already to like the 15th and 16th centuries. Life in Poland was fantastic for the Jews. It was fantastic. <coughs> in fact, they used to say in Yiddish, Poland, Poilun which means, here we're going to stay. Poilun, here we're going to stay, we're going to rest, we're going to dwell until Mashiach comes, until the Messianic era. They believed that Poland was their Jerusalem. Until it wasn't. Until massive massacres happened. We're talking about massacres that happened in the 1600s. And there was a time when the Jewish, and this was not only in Poland, this was in, in general in Eastern Europe and in Russia, when the Jewish communal spirit was at an all-time low. It was depressed financially and emotionally and spiritually. And what happened then was that there began to be a break within the community, a break in the community. Whereas, until then, Typically, everyone had an education, or most people that wanted had an education. At some point, it fractured. <clears throat> and it became only those who were considered the elite, or only those who had the money, or only those who had the connections, were able to get a Torah education. And the rest, what happened to the rest? They just were farmers, or shoemakers or silversmiths. 
they were just, not ju- I don't mean just to disparage, I'm just saying they were involved in manual labor and they did not have the opportunity based on not just pragmatic considerations, based on almost how the society morphed, they did not have the opportunity to study. And in fact, <coughs> it broke out in communities that there were two different, there were different synagogues. There were the synagogues for those that were the scholars, those that studied Talmud, for example. And then there were synagogues for those that didn't know how to study Talmud. And it was almost like if you, not almost like, if you didn't know how to study, you simply weren't invited or weren't welcome to those other synagogues. It just wasn't a welcome space. This is the era, this is the time period that the Baal Shem Tov emerged within. The Baal Shem Tov came around. I'm going to try to take a quick look at when was the Baal Shem Tov born. Baal Shem Tov was born in the year, hold on. He was born in the year 1698. So this is coming at the end. He was born in the year Nachas, I believe. Nachas. 1698. In Hebrew, it's known as Nachas. 1698. The end of the 1600s. 1600s was a devastating century for the Jewish people in Eastern Europe. Arises the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov was a tzaddik, a righteous man. He lost his parents at a young age. He was an orphan. Both of his parents passed away. He had a lot of self-reliance, a lot of resilience. He had teachers that guided him in the ways of Torah and ultimately in the ways of Jewish mystical teaching as well. He remained a hidden tzaddik, a tzaddik who was kind of like incognito for many years until his 36th birthday when his teacher told him, you got to go public, right? Today that means something else for companies, but you got to go public, you got to spread these teachings. But even before then, Bashemtov would visit communities. As a traveler, as a wanderer, he was a school teacher, and his, his, he felt his mission in life was one thing not to study the most Torah, not to write the most books, not to come up with the most novel insights, not to be the biggest scholar, but to be the one that inspires people to believe in their own ability and to believe in their own genuine, authentic, perfect, and pure connection with God Almighty. He took it upon himself to teach young kids. This was a tzaddik before he, you know, tzaddik, hidden tzaddik, and a mystic, a Kabbalist. And what did he do? He taught children. (coughs) And his message to children was, yeah, like Abraham, his message to the children was, Hashem loves you. And reminding them that no matter how much they know or how little they know, no matter how well it's snowing, guys? It is snowing? Ooh. You want to say hi to the camera? No. Okay. Anyway, the kids are checking for snow. Whether it's going to happen or not, I'm, hope, I'm hoping that it works out for them. Um, <coughs> the Baal encouraged the children. Why would I discourage them as I'm saying about the Baal Why would I throw cold rain on their snow party. 
The Bashemtev encouraged the children to believe in their connection with Hashem. Hashem loves you and Hashem cares about you and no matter how much you know or how little you know, you are connected. Which, by the way, is 100% true and 100% consistent with everything that Judaism teaches. The Baal Shem Tev didn't teach anything new. But he reminded, he reminded, he re-prioritized, he re-reminded us of what's real and what's just ego. What's real? Everyone is God's child. What's ego? To get into the synagogue, you have to be a Talmud scholar. That's ego. Are you with me on that? What's real is that God loves you. What's ego is, God loves you if you show up with a certain amount of, of knowledge under your belt. That's ego. That's straight up ego. Ego couched in a halo. That's ego dressed up with a halo. Still the same ego. By the way, the reason why we're talking about this is because that is today's chapter of overcoming folly. The dangers of ego for the scholar. So that's exactly the topic. Just so you know, we're not off topic. This is the topic for today. So Hashem Tev came around and he said, guys, listen up. Hashem loves you. He would go to farms. He would travel. Um, I'm looking around. Who was there at the last Shabbat learner service? Right? Remember we spoke of, right, Donna, Dina. So we spoke, I told the story of the Baal Shem Tov, one of my favorite stories. Baal Shem Tov was traveling through the countryside. And he was traveling through the countryside and he met a person who was looking, sorry, and there was a fellow there. At that point, the Baal Shem Tov's reputation was known, but he would still travel. He would still go around and meet people and encourage them and inspire them and teach them whatever they could understand and, you know, uplift their spirits. That was like the most important thing to him, that people should be, should, should feel their connection to Hashem. So he goes to this farm, this, this place, this, yeah, this, this hut, and the guy, the, 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 the householder, the owner of the house, he... The Balabas, as we say in Yiddish, he invites him in and he, he, he inspire, they have a conversation. And at some point, the man says, look, I've been waiting for someone knowledgeable to help me out. He pulls out a siddur. Right, Dina, you remember the story? He pulls out a siddur, his prayer book. He says, Vashantav, can you help me? Vashantav says, sure. How can I help you? He says, I know how to read Hebrew, but I have no idea what any of the words mean. Listen to this. This is an amazing story. I know how to read Hebrew. I can read the words. I have no idea what they mean. And so every day, I struggle with knowing what's the morning prayer, what's the afternoon prayer, what's the evening prayer, what's the Shabbat prayer, what's the holiday prayer, what's the... the you know, can you help me? Can you guide me as to what you say when? So the Baal Shem Tov said, sure. I'd be, I, it was, he was thrilled. Like, yes, this is perfect. I can help guide your sitter. They took pieces of paper. Or whatever they had. Some, some paper-like substance. Paper. Let's just call it paper. And he wrote down, you know, little bookmarks. This is for the morning. This is for the afternoon. This is for the evening. This is for the bedtime prayer. This is for the grace after meals. This is for, uh, you know, whatever. 
And he marked it up. The whole Siddur he marked up. Little piece of paper. A Bashem of leaves. And at some point, shortly thereafter, this man had a little child. And the... Oh, you do have snow in your head. Oh my gosh. Can you show everybody? Let's go. Bring it in. Where's your snow? I it, think it, it, did it melt? Oh, my, no, I see it. It's still there. Here. All right. You can almost see it. I can see it. Anyway, so the Bashemtiv, so, so this fellow had a child, and she picks up the book. Yeah, she picks up the book. And, you know, she's. And, the, and all, all the pages, all, the, all the, the inserts fall out. You with me on this? She picks up the book, and you know how it is, right? Just falls out. The dad walks back into the room at some point later, and he sees the, all the pieces on the floor. And at this point, he is devastated. I mean, how many years was he struggling with not knowing the prayers? He had his one shot. The, this great rabbi came by his small farm village. At the, he's devastated. He's not upset. I mean, he's, not, he's, not, uh, he's, he's a mensch. He's not upset at the, at the child. I mean, child's a child. But he's devastated about not knowing now what to do. So he decides he's chasing after the Baal He's like, I'm going to catch up to him. And he kind of knew which direction he had headed, so he starts running. He's running, he's running, he's running with a sitter. He's holding the book and piece of paper. He's like, he's, he's going to chase after him until he catches him. He doesn't see him, but he, he's running toward the direction that he knew he was headed. Well, at some point, he sees the Baal to finally, like all the way ahead. He can't shout to him. You know, you could see, but you can't. The voice wouldn't carry. He sees in the distance that the Baal Shem Tov comes to a body of water. And he's thinking, oh good, the Baal Shem Tov has to like go around or whatever it is. Baal Shem Tov takes out a handkerchief. The Baal Shem Tov was also a miracle worker. Baal Shem Tov takes out a handkerchief. And he waves the handkerchief. And this is how the story goes. Listen to this. And the Baal Shem Tov then put down the handkerchief and was able to glide over the water to the other side. Collected the handkerchief and kept on walking. The man sees this all the way up ahead. He's not stopping. He's running. He's running. He gets to the water and he says to himself, I also have a handkerchief. Can't hurt to try. Pulls it out. Waves it. Puts it down. He's gliding. Gets to the other side. Continues to chase. Eventually catches up. Bash, he says, Oh, Hey, God, I caught you, Rabbi. I have a question. Bashem says, hold on, before any questions. Did you, was there a body of water back there? Yeah. He says, how did you get across? He says, well, I saw you with the handkerchief, so I did the same thing. He's like, okay, what's your question? The Siddur, the pages, the, the, he's like, listen, if that's how you got across, you don't need to change anything that you're doing. <laughs> Whatever you're doing is Perfectly fine. That's the end. That's how the story ends. I mean, that's how the story, how I heard it ends. What's the actual end of the story? Did he not mark up his sitter? Did he just let... I don't know. The point is, there's a power, even if we don't know everything, even if we don't know the meaning of all the prayers, even if we don't exactly know where to start or where to stop. Rahmana liba ba'i. God wants your heart. It's not some weird vampire thing. No. God, or I don't know if vampires are hearts, but whatever. God wants your 
heart, our heart. Rachmana liba ba'i. God wants the heart. God wants us. Is it how much? Is it about how much we know? What you think there's a score? You think there's a score chart? Hey, oh, that's a lot of snow now. All right, it's getting real. Good guys, enjoy the snow. Make some snow angels. So, here's the deal. There's no scorecard in heaven. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. It's not like, oh, you only studied, you know, um, t- five tractates of Talmud and not six. Oh, now you rank lower. This is not the BCS. This is not like, there's no ranking system. The Baal Shem Tev, this is why, I think some of you are aware of this, that the Hasidic movement was, was met with a lot of resistance. You know Why? Think about it. The Hasidic movement said, yeah, that arrogant Torah study doesn't do anything for God. You know what that does to the arrogant Torah scholar? It ruffles some feathers. It's like, whoa, you're trying to tear down what we have. Like, what we have is this institution of hierarchy that we've created to prop ourselves up. And now you're saying that that not only is artificial, but also in the grand scheme, not even grand, in the divine scheme of things, actually not valuable, now it's getting personal. You understand why they felt attacked? I'm just saying, that's why the establishment felt attacked. That's the the reason. The Baal Shem Tov was not actually attacking. He was simply stating, he was simply elevating the spirits of of the masses with consistent messages. I think Dina wrote in the the comments before, like Abraham, exactly like Abraham. What Abraham said, you're only invited in, in my tent if, come on, not Abraham. Abraham's the first Jew, the one who started this whole thing to begin with. Open doors. Open doors. You had to pass an exam to get in to Abraham's tent. Two tents, right? One for monotheists and one for non-monotheists. You kidding me? Abraham was all about the people. Baal Shem Tev didn't do anything new. He just reminded us of what is real and what is man-made. And I hope that makes sense. There's what God... There's. There's what the truth is, and then there's the layers that humans do. Due to, I don't know, I'm going to let us off the hook a little bit. Dude, it's not necessarily malicious. It just kind of evolves, and we're not perfect, and we do have an ego, and that's what happens. The Bashemtiv brought things back to, their, to the core. What's real, and what's fake? What's authentic to Judaism, and what was kind of added on over the years, but not so real. That's what the Baal Shem Tov was doing. It met with a lot of resistance. Not from the people, but from, not from the masses, but from those that wanted to hold on to their, you know, their exclusive spaces. In, in the Hasidic lore, right, in the Hasidic legend, it says the following. The Rebbe spoke about this. I say legend, it's not like a Baba Maisa, but the Rebbeim spoke about this. The Chabad Rebbe spoke about this. The Baal Shem Tov's name was Yisrael. 
That was his Hebrew name, Yisrael. It says in, in Jewish thought that when a person faints, one way to wake them up is by whispering their name in their ear. Because the name, especially a Jewish name, is connected with the neshama, with the soul. The name, and a soul is not a name, right? You could have a soul before a name is given, right? I am I, whether or not you know what my name, I, I still am I. But, but it does say that a name is somewhat of a handle on the soul and can summon, that's the word I'm looking for, summon the soul. So when a person faints, of course, there's smelling salts and other, I, I don't know, I feel like I'm going ancient techniques here. Whatever the modern techniques are, but a Jewish technique, at least brought down in the Jewish sources, is to whisper or to call out their name or their Hebrew name. So it says, the Jewish people then, in the 1600s, were in a state of faint. It was like, yeah, it was, the, there were Jews, it was, you know, stuff going on, but it was still, it was like, it's kind of flatlining. Everyone's depressed and, and I can't say everyone. It's not like the entire Jewry existed in Eastern Europe, but that part of the world Jewry. Until the Baal Shem Tov. Yisrael was like God calling the name of the Jewish people and waking them up. With the soul, Yisrael, the Baal Shem Tov, it woke up the Jews. And what that means, woke up, is reminded everyone, whether they liked it or not, of what is actually authentic and real and true. So, part of the teachings of Chassidus, Chassidut, Chassidism, whatever you want to call it, Hasidic philosophy, is the value of simplicity and sincerity. This is such a major topic. I'm going to say it again. A major topic and a value in the Hasidic worldview, Hasidic perspective, is simplicity and sincerity. Authentically, really feeling something for God and, and, and doing what Hashem wants, what God wants, purely because Hashem wants it. Not for one's own, one, one's own agenda, not because it feels good, not because it makes sense, not because you understand the meditation about it, not because it, you feel connected and plugged in and it's going to make your life better. Simply you're doing it because God said. It's like a child. Simply. Parent says, can you do this? The child says, sure. And the child does it. It's simple. It's pure. It's sincere. It's not complicated. The myla, the value of sincerity is championed in the teachings of Chassidic philosophy. Now, it's not exclusively in Chassidic philosophy. It's in Judaism. But you, you know what it is. It's like, it's like a film. Cinematography. If I said that correctly. It's like, where do you focus the lens of the camera? Right? Which character, which scene, which image is in focus and which is blurry? There are a lot of themes. But what's the focus? What's the, what's the big focus? The Hasidic focus, a major focus is on sincerity, simplicity, pshitus, timimus. 
To me, pshitos means simple, not complicated, not sophisticated, simple. Timimos means wholeness, like W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S, whole, not, not complicated, whole and authentic. In fact, when the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, started the Chabad Yeshiva system, Tafresh Nuntes, 1898 or 1899 in uh, Russia, back in Russia. So he said that Yeshiva is going to be called and the and the um, the students there are going to be called Tamimim, which means whole ones. It doesn't work in English. Tama means you're not complicated. It's just, you're just all there. You're just there, you're present, you're real, you're authentic, you're sincere, simple, straightforward. What you see is what you get. And it's not like, it's not a show. It's not a facade. When you're praying in Shul, the Amidah, you're not looking around as when everyone else is davening, let me go longer than everyone else, that everyone else realizes that I daven the slowest, that I'm concentrating the most. You think I'm kidding, by the way, about this? And this is not a knock, but I'm telling you a fact. In some synagogues, the one who davens the longest is considered to be the mo- obviously the most devout, so guess what happens? Everyone's going long. Why? Because they want to be known as the most devout. Guess what's not happening? Not thinking about God right there. If only I was kidding. You see the difference? There's praying to God. And then there's wanting everyone to know that you're praying to God the longest. Those are very different experiences. Even if your Amida takes 30 minutes. It's a different experience. Different experience. Sorry, even if your Amida goes 30 minutes, if your experience of 30 minutes is so that everyone knows you did it for 30 minutes. Yeah? Rabbi, got a question. Yeah, Yaakov. Um, so uh, I, that, that all makes perfect sense. Um, but what about um, you know the the that we actually like a person might feel guilty because we're told hey you know every every time has its has its opportunity then you miss a time um, to pray and you'll never get that time back etc to elevate that time or whatever happens um, so how do we get around you know feeling bad or feeling guilty or feeling down that we don't pray every day, perhaps, or don't study every day. So quantity, quality over quantity. That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, I think it's important to see that, the guilt, as we've discussed in other classes, at other, in other contexts, the guilt is actually the strongest tactic of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. 
The evil inclination doesn't even want us to miss davening for the sake of missing davening one day, which is davening is prayer in Yiddish. It, what it wants is for us to miss davening and then feel guilty about it and then miss it again. Are you with me? No, the, the agenda, and this is not my idea. This is, this is straight up in Chassidus, in Chassidic works. It says straight up. This is, and some of you have, I think we did this in the course called Warrior to Warrior. It was uh, one of the JLI courses. There was a quote in there, and I can't say it verbatim, but the upshot was the Yetzirahara, or the animal soul, the same thing, the evil inclination does not even, the agenda is not the sin. It's the feeling bad about the sin that comes later. It's the guilt that really gets a person. So what I would say in response to your question, which is a very good question, is you got to let that go. Somebody told, who told me recently? A football analogy. Who told me this? Like yesterday, the day before. About the... um, doesn't matter who told me, but what were they telling me? They were watching last week's, there was a football game. There was a football game between, let me think. There was a game. I think it was the Raiders-Chargers game last Sunday. It's like a very, like, very stressful game for all parties involved over there. I don't remember the details of the, of the example, but it was something like, there, was, there were opportunities missed in that game. And ultimately, the fellow who missed the opportunities, a few of them throughout the game, capitalized when it counted at the end of the game. And his point was, if at any point in time he felt really bad about missing those earlier opportunities and was in his head, then the likelihood of him succeeding at the end might have evaporated to nothing. If it's in your head about how, right, I'm a failure, I, I messed up, I disappointed myself, I disappointed my teammates, I disappointed my fans, I'm a failure, I didn't get it done, um, you know, if that's the narrative, then guess what's gonna happen? Just going to perpetuate that behavior. It's going to take, it's, it's gonna lead to the next failure. So one thing that's required in both sports and life is amnesia. On-call, on-demand amnesia. I'm going to forget what happened the moment before. It does not matter because the only thing that matters right now is right now. That's the only time that, the only fragment of time that matters is the one right in front of me. The fact that I prayed or didn't pray or didn't pray as well as I could yesterday or even earlier this morning doesn't matter right now. What matters right now is that I do, I take care of business. I do what I need to do. It's not taking care of business, but I, that I connect authentically as best I can in this moment. And if, it, if this moment is great, great. If it's not great, I have another moment. That's the healthy, that's the healthy approach according to the Hasidic understanding. It's on-demand, I would say on-demand amnesia. Doesn't matter what happened before. It doesn't, it's not going to matter what happens tomorrow. It doesn't matter. The Rebbe said, yeah, go out to the streets, wrapped filling. Go out with 
prepare tefillin and ask people, hey, are you Jewish? Have you put on tefillin? Would you like to put on tefillin? Wrap them up. And people ask why. What's the point? What's the point? They didn't put on tefillin yesterday. They're not going to put on tefillin tomorrow. What's the point? You know what the point is? Right now there's a point. Right now. There was a young boy, the parable goes. Young boy walking along the seashore. He's picking up starfish and throwing them back into the ocean. And the old man says, what are you doing? And the young boy says, I'm throwing the starfish back into the ocean where they can live and survive. He says, look around. There are so many starfish. You're picking up a few, right? What you're doing doesn't matter. And as Yaakov just wrote the punchline, he picks up the next one, he throws it in and said, yeah, it mattered to that one. Doesn't matter what happened before, what happened later, what happened to this one, what happened to that one. In this moment, this time, this person, this experience, it matters. It matters 100%. This is the only thing actually that matters. It's our negative tendency that talks about the past or the future or this one or that one. That's the spin. That's the distraction. That's the circus. That's the whole three-ring circus. Barnum and Bailey. We get so confused and so, oh, I can't do this. Right? Oh, look at that. Why? What's the problem? Oh, I, I don't do this mitzvah. You don't do this mitzvah. Do it right now. I mean, you don't do this mitzvah. Right? It doesn't matter what happened before, what happened later. You got a mitzvah opportunity right now. You have an opportunity to connect. Purely. The problem is, you see, this is also, this is a good, your question was about a related topic and I gave you a related, an answer to that, to that question or a response to that question, but you know what this question answer highlights? It's the same nakuda, the same point. Simplicity. When we get sophisticated and complicated, that's when the problems begin. It's like, oh, time is not just now, it's before and after and later and yesterday and this, and this becomes a, a chalent. It becomes a whole thing. One second, one second. Keep it simple. Today's class, it's all about sophistication or simplicity. If you read the email, if you got the email, sophistication, simplicity. It's all about simplicity, chassidic movement, simplicity. Simplicity. Don't, uh, don't think about what happened yesterday, what's happening tomorrow. That's complicated. You're complicating things. I'm not saying use individual. Right? We're complicating things when we do that. Think simply what is happening right now. What do I need to do? Am I connecting? Can I connect? How can I connect? Will I connect? That's it. That's the only calculus. The only, the only cheshben. The only thought is, let me connect now. So getting back to the story, Hasidic movement championed simplicity. In fact, <clears throat> Kabbalah and Hasidus highlight the idea that even the greatest scholars would say, if only I could pray like a child. What does that mean? Imagine somebody who knows all the prayers. When I say all the prayers, the Hebrew prayers, they know the meaning of all the, of all the words that they're saying. Inside and out. When you come to a prayer, you know exactly what it means, you know exactly what you're saying. Great. Not only that, you have like, you know Kabbalah on it, so you know now the meditations. Now you're flying. Oh, what an experience. Oh, man, this is going to be a layered experience. This is like 
fine culinary art with layered tastes and umami or whatever it's called, like boom, right? It's, you got, I just did a John Madden there out of nowhere, right? You got all this, you got all this stuff that was, gotta isolate that. I'm not gonna do it again. You got all this stuff going on. It's a, it's an ex, it's a rich experience. It's like, it's so sweet. But you know what the greatest Kabbalist would say? I wish I could pray with the consciousness of a child. You know how a child prays? A child doesn't know about the Sfirot, about the worlds, about the energies, about Chachma, Bina, Das, Chesed, Gvura, Teferis, Netzach, Hodjeson, Malchus, Atzilus, Priyatzir, Asir. The child doesn't know any of that. You know what the child knows? Hashem created me and I'm his child and I need something and I'm going to ask. Simple and pure and sincere. At the end of the day, which is the more powerful prayer? The one in which the person goes on this trip or the most straightforward, pure, innocent, sincere prayer. Father, dad, whatever. It doesn't have to be gender specific. Mom, whatever you want to call. God is not a gender, right? Hashem, please help. That's the, most, that's the most perfect prayer. Now, now, understand this. You might be wondering, so then why are we studying all of this? We're just getting more sophisticated. We're just pulling ourselves away from... The ultimate is when you have both, is when you have a real understanding and you can still be sincere. There is pre-understanding sincerity, which is an understanding that's born, sorry, a sincerity born of, I'm, gonna, I'm, not, I'm not saying this in a disparaging way, a sincerity born of a lack of understanding. Then there's a sincerity that it comes after understanding, that even after I understand, I still recognize the value of sincerity. That's the ultimate. And there's other values in sophistication and knowing and studying. Obviously, we're studying Torah. That's, you know, in time Jewish Academy, it's, that's, that's what we're about, studying. It's not about like, oh, just, you know, I'm going to belief and faith and trust and, and that's it. And, and, and you're fine. So obviously, there's, a, there's an emphasis in Judaism. There's an emphasis on Torah study and Kabbalah and meditation. And that's literally what we're doing. I mean, we have a whole class explaining Intellectually, why sophistication is, you see what we're, so yes, there's value in knowing, but there's also value in just being connected. So today, as we go inside the text, you're going to see this theme come up again and again. The dangers of scholarship. Now, he's not advocating, and nor am I advocating, that we should stop learning, stop meditating. I mean... We have a class starting in a week and a half, a little over a week, called Meditation from Sinai, which I highly advise that you do come to. Be like, oh, I, I don't need Meditation from Sinai, I'll just be simple. Didn't you just say that? I did, but I'm also saying that there's the, the, the highest level simplicity is when you have an awareness and you're still pure. There's a tenua there. There's a, there's a nuance there. You know, you recognize, you get it. 
and you're still able to turn off your ego and say, it's all about you. That's the highest level. The highest level is the meditation with the simplicity. That's the highest level. So yes, make sure you're, you're in on meditation from Sunday, starting the 25th and the 27th of January. All right, back to, back to the point. <coughs> Let's jump in. You're going to see here the, um, the powerful emphasis. Hold on. Let me get this right. The powerful emphasis on sincerity. I have this ready. There's a lot more to say. Okay, here, here's, here's my, uh, my final point of intro before we actually jump into the text. Is, there, is there snowing? It's seriously snowing. Really? Oh, look at this. We're getting reports of snow in the windshields. Look at that. Guys, it's a January 16th miracle. Okay. Um, Better than the Weather Channel. Right. Oh, yeah. These are live updates. Oh, this is fantastic. Yeah. We got our own. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, I, tell them to make sure it's, it's not mana. Oh, right. I'm not going to ask them to taste it, though. That's going to be uh, never lick snow from a windshield. I've, I learned the hard way. Um, also, I think I told this story. Never pour water on your windshield to try to rinse something away when it's cold. I, I made a mistake in New York. I don't know. Retrospect, it's going to sound ridiculous, but it actually happened to me. My first car, Lan and I were living, I don't know even know if Nussin was around. Maybe he was. This was back in the day. You know, we were in Brooklyn, Crown Heights. It was cold, freezing morning. I had a little Saturn. Remember those little, like, red Saturn? Love that car. We moved down to Atlanta. We drove that car down. Love that car. Anyway, SL1 or something. Little Saturn. I got that. Oh, so cool. I got that car when it was 10 years old, like I think 2004. Yeah. It was in 1994. We got it in 2004. I think it had like 10,000 miles. It was my old neighbor, my downstairs neighbor. We had a duplex in Pittsburgh. Downstairs neighbor. She just drove it like around the corner. Like and like, didn't really drive it. It was like it was like a brand new car 10 years later. It was great. Loved that car. But I, I made the blunder. I like it was like something was going on with the windshield. I don't remember what. I can't think it was trying to wash race. No, I I don't I hope I wasn't that ridiculous. Maybe it was dirty or something and I poured the water. Although could be. Maybe I'm just making myself feel better. But it like froze on contact as you can imagine. And I'm like, oh great, now I really need one of those like scrapey things, which I didn't have at that point, but then I got it. All right, back to the story. I'm going to share my screen. Let's jump in. I feel like, you know, listen, I, one thing that, that I hope uh, we create here at IJ is a family. So you get to hear my family stories, personal stories and all that good stuff. All right, let's go. Chapter four. You're bouncing? Okay. All right, great. Chapter four. Where's your sister? All right. Chapter four. Look at this. Who would have thought? Sincere versus scholarly. Look at that. Look at that. Actually connected with, uh, with what we've been talking about. Okay. The person, listen to this. The person who studies Torah and engages in avoda. Avoda is, okay, what is avoda? Avoda, why can't I highlight that? Avoda literally means service. Now, in this context, avoda was service of what? Avoda means 
Typically, the service of prayer. The Torah says, all right, let me stop sharing for a second. Oh, we were so close to reading inside. The Torah says, serve God with all your heart. The Talmud asks, what does it mean to serve God with your heart? What? That's not an actionable um, command. You tell me, give tzedakah. Got it. Wrapped fillin'. Got it. Light Shabbat candles. Sure. Eat kosher. Got it. Serve God with your heart, with all your heart. I need a little bit more information because I'm not sure what I do with my heart. Like, what do you want me to do? What do I actually do? Serve God with all your heart. What's, what's the next step? Like, what does that look like? The Talmud says, The Talmud asks rhetorically, what is service of the heart? How do you serve God with your heart? And the Talmud answers, Tfila, prayer. What does it mean to serve God with your heart? No, it doesn't mean to. I don't even know what, what I, don't, I don't even know what, what I would say, but as a joke, but it means prayer. Prayer is how we serve God with our heart. Which means prayer is an emotional connection. It's a time when we connect emotionally with God. It's not about saying words on the page. Mumble, 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 jumble, mumble, mumble, jumble, which you could get the impression if you walk into the synagogue, you might think that, oh, it's just saying a bunch of words on a page that you didn't write yourself. That's not what prayer is. I mean, that's what's sometimes done, but that's not what prayer is. What is prayer? Avodah Shabalev. It's an emotion. It's a connection. It's, it's straight up a connection. So back to the story. Back, back to the script. The person who studies Torah and engages in Avodah, they're studying Torah and praying. Let's continue. Yet, occasionally blunders in finding excuses for himself in the environment and influences of others, which we spoke about, which we've been speaking about the last, I mean, on and off the last month or two. So this is a person who's studying Torah, is engaged in prayer, but when things go wrong, what do they do? They blame and point fingers. Oh, it's my environment that's a problem. It's this person that led me astray. It's that person's fault. It's that, ba, 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 ba. pointing fingers. What does that mean? We said before what that means is, well, they're not taking responsibility, but what does it really mean in this context? What does it really mean? It means that their ego is alive and well. What's the ego? The ego doesn't allow them, selves, to take full responsibility and ownership over the occasional blunder. What's wrong with making a mistake and saying, I messed up? I, to I messed up. I totally messed up. I own it. I blundered. I'm going to fix it. Now, here, here's the deal. That's true. It's true and honest. It's also the most simple and straightforward way to address a blunder. I messed up. I'm sorry. Let me fix it. Or I'll, I'll do my best to fix it and not do it again. Straightforward. You know what's not straightforward? You know what's sophisticated? Let me tell you why that happened. That happened because he, she, they, I, I wanted, I thought, I did, I didn't. A whole story, a whole hack. 
Hakachainik, you know what that means? You hit a tea kettle, bing, 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 bing. You're just making noise. Hacking a chainik means making a lot of noise. Making a lot of noise and pointing a lot of fingers. So he says, the person who, is this, who studies Torah and engages in avoda, which avoda won't get highlighted for some reason, and occasion, yet occasionally blunders in finding excuses for occasionally blunders. Well, I'm going to add that he blunders because he makes a mistake and then adds to it in finding excuses for himself in the environment and influence of others. He says that person, listen to this, is inferior to the simple man who does not study Torah and has no conception about avoda whatsoever. Imagine the person who can't study Torah, doesn't understand Torah, never had a Jewish education. When I say Jewish, a Torah education. Never studied Torah. Why? Who knows why? You want to know why 100 years ago, 200 years ago? Probably financial. Probably societal, sociological. Probably they grew up in a poor family or a family that was, had a farm or had a business, whatever it is, and they just weren't. It's probably what was going on. So this person doesn't study Torah. Why they never study Torah? They don't know how to study Torah. There's no context for them to study Torah. The internet hasn't been created yet. In Town Jewish Academy hasn't been active yet. They don't know how to, they, they've never studied Torah before. Then there's no, there's no context. There's no Torah class for the person who's never studied Torah. It didn't exist. They have no conception about avoda. What's avoda? I say words on a page that I don't know what they mean. Now, let's just assume, which is an assumption, but just for this, it's a theoretical enemy. Let's assume that this person actually does know how to read Hebrew. Somehow they learned how to read Hebrew. They know Aleph and Beth and Gimel and Dalit. They know that. That's, that's, but that's all they know. They don't know what it means, avoda, to, to serve God in prayer, to meditate and to think about, to contemplate. They know it. You know what the Talmud says? Chassidim Rishonim, the early Chassidim. Now this is the Talmud. They didn't mean Chassidim the way we mean Chassidim, but they still called them Chassidim. Maybe they didn't mean, and then we didn't realize it until centuries later. Either way, would pray, the experience was three hours. They would meditate for an hour, study and meditate for an hour, pray for an hour, and study and meditate again for an hour. Three hours. For all three prayers. A day for a total of nine hours. The, to, the, to which point the Talmud asks if they studied and meditated for nine hours a day, how did they get any work done? And the Talmud explains how. That's irrelevant. Avoda is a sophisticated complex. It's a, it's, a, it's a work. It's an effort. I'm not suggesting everyone has to pray for three hours a day, for nine hours a day. Even uh, nine minutes is good. Just, just mean it. The point here is, the Rebbe Rashab, oh, the founder of the, the yeshiva, the same, uh, he's the author of the text that we're studying, same, who, the same one that I mentioned before. He's telling us that the person who's the scholar and the sophisticated, and the, he's got all figured out, and he's, oh, he's going to show you how he davens, oh, he's going to put on a show. But when push comes to shove, he's pointing fingers. You know why he's pointing fingers? Because he can't admit, he can't show that he's wrong. Why? Because ego. Because ego. That guy is lower in rank than the guy who doesn't know how to study and doesn't know how to pray uh, in a sophisticated way. 
but is just sincere. That's the idea that he's sharing here. Let's keep on going. Let's continue. One can find merit for the simple man, he says. If the simple man makes a mistake, right? That's not it. For he is not a man of Torah learning and did, not, and did nothing to corrupt himself, right? The simple man, yeah, he never had the opportunity to study. It's not like he knows and is convincing himself and is playing a game. He's straightforward. What he knows, he knows. What he doesn't know, he doesn't know. There are areas of, let's say, Jewish law and tradition he doesn't know and he makes mistakes and he doesn't, he only knows what he knows. One second. Ellie, 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 go to the other room where it's less noisy. Um, so, he, he, he doesn't, yeah, he, he's done nothing to corrupt himself. So why would he be deprived? Listen to the argument, to rhetorical question. Why would he be deprived of any merit he has just by being born with a brain that cannot absorb Torah ideas? For example, let's say this person, not only did he not have the opportunity to study Torah, let's say he just doesn't have a, what we would call in Yiddish, a Gemara cup. You know what a Gemara cup is? A cup is a head. A head for Gemara, for Talmud study. Doesn't have a Gemara cup. He doesn't have a head, a brain that can absorb you know, complicated Torah ideas. Is that bad? Not bad. Is that a fault? There's no fault. Right? Saying on the contrary. This person is, there's nothing, there's, this person is faultless and blameless. There's nothing, there's only beauty here. There's no flaw. If someone say, ah, that person doesn't study Talmud. Oh, look, they're inferior. What kind of flaw is that? They can't. Either they can't because they can't, or they can't because they never did, or they never learned how. They can't. You hold it against them. You know, the biggest mistake we make is that God holds us to some sort of magical, objective standard that is um, unrealistic. Let's give God a little bit more credit. Let's, um, let's recognize that God holds us not to someone else's standard, to our standard. The famous story of Reb Zusha of Anipoli. Famous Hasidic master, Reb Zusha, was on his deathbed. And his students were gathered around him. And they were speaking words, loving words of encouragement and love and connection. And it was very emotional. They were saying, Reb Zusha, our teacher, our master, you were as wise as Solomon, as generous as Abraham. <coughs> you were as good a teacher as Moses. And he said to his students, he stopped them. He said, when I, when I cross over to the other side, they're not going to ask me, why weren't you like Solomon? Why you know, Did you measure up to Solomon 100% or Abraham or Moses? That's not going to be the question. The question is not, why weren't you like Solomon, Moses, or Abraham? The question is, why weren't you like Reb Zusha? There's only one standard that we are expected to be, and that is ourselves. There's only one measure that we are meant to hit, our measure. If we can't, then trust me, it's not expected. If we can't, if I can't, God is not holding it against me. If you can't, God is not holding it against you. It's like there's certain mitzvahs. We talked about this in the context of reincarnation. Certain mitzvot that can only be done 
by a Kohen. Certain mitzvot that can only be done by a Levi. Certain mitzvot that can only be done by Yisrael. Certain mitzvot that can only be done by a man. Certain mitzvot that can only be done by a woman. You think when a person finishes their, their time on earth, they're being asked, how, if they were a man, how come you didn't do all the mitzvahs for women? You think a woman's asked, how come you didn't do all the mitzvahs for men? You think a Kohen is asked, how come you didn't do all the Israelite mitzvahs? And you think that Levi is asked, how come you didn't do all the Kohen mitzvahs? You think we're held to a different standard than who we are? Of course not. The Rebbe Rashab is saying here, the person is only being measured by their own capability. The person that can't study Torah in a sophisticated fashion, that's a mark against them? No, it's not. It's nothing. It's just not, an, it's just not who they are. This is a straightforward approach to people. This is a simple way of looking at people. Not everyone's the same. Respect difference. Honor the other purely for who they are. God certainly does. This judgment, I'm better than you because I can study more Talmud than you. This is what was going on before the Bashan. I'm better than you. I have a better synagogue because I can study more Talmud than you. The game, it turned Judaism into a game. It's a game now. It's literally a game. How high do you rank? What level are you at? Level? This is a game? It's a video game? Ranking? What is this? Super Mario Brothers? You're gathering coins? What are we doing here? What is this? It's a game? Back inside. Back inside. What he can do, he does. This simple person. We have to be a tale of two personas. The sophisticated and the simplest. Simplest. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. And the simple person. What he can do, he does. Whether in speech or deed. If he knows how to read, he reads. If he knows how to do a mitzvah, he does the mitzvah. What he knows, he does. What he can do, he does. He acts with simplicity and sincerity. He's giving you a person, a theoretical person. This person acts with simplicity and sincerity. Praying in a simple manner. This is what I said before. Praying in a simple manner. Simple manner means no meditation, no understanding even of the words. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just saying it. I'm praying. Simple, basic manner. Reciting Psalms even though he cannot translate them. That's black and white right here. That's the example that he gives. Listening, listen to this, listen to this. This person goes to a shir. He goes to a class. And you know what? Doesn't really understand it. Doesn't fully understand it. But you know what? He goes. Why? Because that's what you do. You go to a shir. You go to a class. Listening to public study of Mishnah, Enyakov, Pirkei vote. He gives three types of you know, different class ideas, different classes. He goes. Sincerely, simply, he's going. Why? Because that's what a Jew does. You pray, you recite Psalms, you, you study Torah, whether he understands it, whether he doesn't understand it, that's it. Reminds me of a story that I heard from Rabbi Yisrael Gordon. Let me finish this paragraph. So what, what, should he, what shall he do if his mind cannot grasp the idea? It's not his fault if he can't understand it 
But he shows up, and that's what counts. That's the point. That's what counts. Okay? Let, we'll continue in a second. I've got to tell you this story. This story, I will never forget this. As long as I live, please God, I will never forget this story. I heard this probably when I was 13 years old. I've never forgotten this story. Rabbi Yisrael Gordon was the director of a yeshiva summer program in Morristown, New Jersey. His brother, Rabbi Yochanan Gordon, was a tremendous, just a powerful Chabad rabbi in Newark, New Jersey. This is going back a few years. Newark, New Jersey was a major Jewish community before it wasn't. It's now coming back. But this rap, the rabbi that, that told me the story, his brother, this happened with his brother. His brother gave a class. I think it was, it might have been every day. Gave a class, an old shul, an old synagogue, elderly members. They were around the table. Rabbi Gordon sat at the head of the table. And there was a fellow who always sat first seat on the right. They were all elderly people. Listen to this story. This fellow who sat right next to him was hard of hearing, but very hard of hearing. So the other people told, the other, other guys told him, said, why are you sitting in that spot? We're all hard of hearing, right? But at least we, if we were sitting there, if one of us said, we could hear. You can't hear even if you're sitting there. Why are you sitting there? You're taking up a good, good real estate. Yeah? You're squatting on good real estate. He said to him, he said to the guys, there's no doubt, there's no doubt for me that after 120 years, we're all going to be up in Shemayim around the same table. With the same rabbi. And then I'll be able to hear. The power of sincerity is beautiful. All right, let's get back inside. Okay. Second paragraph on 2.30. In truth, he says, simple people have more qualities beside those of simplicity and sincerity. He's saying it's not just simplicity and sincerity. Simple people have more qualities than just simplicity and sincerity. Their prayers and psalms without knowledge of the meaning, sincere and unsophisticated, come from the simple faith implanted in the heart of every Jew at birth. That's what I was saying before. This guy's simple faith that after 120, they're all going to be in the shir, and he will then hear. His neshama will hear. It's a pure faith. But beyond this, there is a quality in the service proper, that means like the service itself, that is unique, unshared by the scholarly, particularly by scholars who engage in the service of the heart. In other words, there's, a, there's an advantage, not just simplicity and sincerity, there's an advantage 
in the prayer of the one who's more, quote-unquote, simple than the one who's sophisticated. Why? Listen to this. Listen to this. The simple man, since he does not know the meaning of the words he utters, derives no pleasure from them. When he davens, it's not like an enjoyable experience. Oh, wow, I had a great davening today. He pats, his, he pats himself on the shoulder. That never happens because he doesn't know what he's saying. He can't feel good about it. How could he feel good? He doesn't know what he said. With him, it is all in a manner of accepting the yoke. What that means is, let me explain. Why is he praying? Not because it feels good. You know why? Because Ayid prays. Ayid davens to the Abishir. A Jew davens to God. A Jew prays. A human being communicates with God. That's it. That, why am I davening? Why am I praying? Because that's what we do. He doesn't understand at all that one can get pleasure from comprehending the words. He doesn't even know that that's a thing. That's a feature? What? It can make you feel good? Why is it? Uh, sorry. It can make me, fe- it can make me feel good? <laughs> Why? Where? How? He doesn't have any concept. There's no musik of that. It's not about himself. He does it purely for the cause, i.e. for Hashem. I.e., that is, he does not understand that comprehension will bring pleasure. But he still, on some level, wants to comprehend what he's saying as below. In other words, he still... Hold on one second. Guys, girls, there's a class going. So he still, he, he wants to understand, but just so that, you know, he'll say it better for Hashem, but it's not about his ego. And look at the, you know, the contrast will be clear. It will be clear with the contrast right here. This cannot be compared at all. To, to the learned person who knows what he is saying and enjoys the concepts conveyed by the words of prayer and psalms. He enjoys it. He enjoys it. This is even truer for one who engages in pro- prolonged worship. Oh, this person who davens ba'avoyed, the davens long? Oh, this guy's really enjoying himself, really enjoying the experience. Savoring every word. Oh, he's, it's, he's, oh I love the prayers. It's delicious. Meditating profoundly on the subject matter of the prayers. He will achieve dveikot, connection with the divine, with the concepts he comprehends. Dveikot is like, he's not only meditating, but he's like becoming one with the concept, with the prayer. And this is characteristic of the intellectual. Through pondering a concept profoundly, he attains a remarkable dveko. Dveko means, again, connection with exalting pleasure. The wisdom of man illuminates his countenance. He's deep, and he's deeply pleased with the magnitude of his intellectual grasp. You know what that means? He's happy with himself. He's like, I had a great day. I had a great davening. That was great. I really killed it out there today. <laughs> he's like, he is, and, and you know what? And people notice and so he's revered by men who laud him as a Torah sage, as an intellectual in the knowledge of God. They're like, oh my, you are the best. You are amazing. He really feels good about himself now. You, real, you, you realize? You see what's going on here? This guy gets it. He gets it so much that he likes getting it. And he likes getting it so much that his face is shining. And people realize that he gets it, and now they like him. And they're like, you're the guy that gets it. And now he's really getting it. Now he's really feeling good. This guy <coughs> is tickle pink. This guy is super, what's the expression? Chuffed? 
Is that an expression in, in, let's say, in South Africa? I forget. I have to ask later. Yeah, his guy's like super, like, feeling good about himself. Contrast that with the simple guy. The, but the simple man does not even know the meaning of the words. <laughs> this guy doesn't even know what he's saying. To say nothing of his inability to drop pleasure for them. He doesn't know what he's saying, let alone, he can't drop pleasure. For, how, can you, how could you be excited and derive pleasure from something you don't, even, you, you don't know what it means? In fact, not only does he not draw pleasure, not only is he not drawing pleasure from the experience, in fact, he is painfully troubled that he does not know the meaning of the words. That bothers him. Like the story with the guy with the Baal Shem Tov. I started the class with the story about the guy who didn't know what to pray. Remember that? He didn't know which prayers to say when, and the Baal Shem Tov showed him the pages, and then the pages fell, and then the bookmarks fell out, and the guy was, he was so... He, so, like, couldn't just, you know, keep on. He had to track down the Baal Shem Tov. He's painfully troubled that he didn't know the meaning of the words or what to say, when to say it. That bothered him. By the way, this is not saying that he shouldn't be bothered. He's just saying where this guy is. He's bothered. He is bothered by this. He's bothered by it. He would love to know what it means. He doesn't. In his low self-esteem... This is not um, a psychological analysis right now. This is just explaining a situation. In his low self-esteem, his heart is broken in humility. His ignorance is a shame for himself, for which he admonished himself bitterly. He feels bad about the fact that other people know what they're saying and he doesn't. That bothers him. He feels embarrassed. Occasionally, he will make some mistake in his prayers or in some passage because of his ignorance. And there will be those present to humili humili humiliate him. He'll make a mistake. People will hear it. Oh, you mispronounced that word. Ha ha. First of all, God forbid anyone should ever do that. He's giving a scenario. Right? This person is living a complicated life. Simple and sincere. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to be simple and sincere. It's not all the time. It's not like this guy's like, look at me, I'm simple and sincere. I'm the highest level. No, this guy is embarrassed. This guy's ashamed. On occasion, this guy is made to feel humiliated by others who are being obnoxious and not doing what they're supposed to be doing or what they're allowed to do, right? Obviously. Not allowed to make someone embarrassed. You know what the Talmud says? You embarrass someone, you kill them. If you embarrass someone, someone who embarrasses someone else, it's like they killed them. Murder. That's what it says in Talmud. Talmud is... Bear someone and their face goes red. It's like you drew blood. You drew blood. The idea of embarrassing someone is one of the most terrible things to do to someone else. So this idea of humility, humiliating someone... Chas v'shalma should happen. But he's saying this is the life of the person, at least back then, maybe it's safer to say back then, of the person who didn't know. Uneducated, doesn't know, doesn't, doesn't know all the prayers, doesn't know what they mean. So number one, let's go through all the ideas in this paragraph. Number one, he doesn't know the meaning of the words. Well, that's what we just said. He can't drop pleasure from them because they don't know what they mean. He's troubled by the fact that he doesn't know. Right? 
Now he's heartbroken. Now he's ashamed. Sometimes he's made to feel humiliated. Nonetheless, and this is the kicker, nonetheless, despite all of this, he's the. Nonetheless, he is determined to pray. To chant the Psalms out loud with a sweet voice. He still does it. He doesn't shut down. He doesn't hide. He doesn't say, well, not for me. Keeps on going. Why? Last line. This comes only from the sincerity and fear of God. Fear means respect of God. For all he performs, all that he does, comes from his... From of... I don't know. There's an extra word there. All he performs comes from his acceptance of the yoke of heaven. His entire... Everything that he does for God is only for God. It's not for himself because if it's for himself, it actually doesn't feel good. He's not praying for himself. He's not praying for an ego trip. He's not praying to feel good. He's not praying to feel connected. He's not praying for anything. He's praying because God said pray. He's praying. God wants him to pray. He's praying. That's it. It's all about God. And that elevates it not just a little bit, qualitatively changes the dynamic of that person's prayer vis-a-vis the person who is sophisticated and gets it and understands it and is meditating. It's a completely different experience. It's not just, the, not just we're saying that the simple person is actually on a higher level. It's exponentially higher. It's completely different. And what do I mean by that? The sophisticated is praying ultimately, I, I, I know we're going um, stereotypical here, but that's the way this chapter ran, just to give us the extremes. The sophisticate is praying for himself. At the end of the day, at the, guys, shh, 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 the end of the day, it's an ego trip. What's the ego trip? The ego trip is, look at me, look at how much I've studied, Look how much I prayed. Look how long I prayed. Look how well I know the words. I feel good about the fact that I prayed so well. So who's praying for who? Who's praying to who? Who's? Who are you praying for? Yourself. Good. Be honest then. Be honest. I'm doing this as another form of ego trip. Some people go to Vegas. Some people... Vegas is an ego trip. I don't know. Some people have fun this way. Some people have fun that way. I have fun in prayer. But be honest that it's you're having fun. Be honest. You want to have fun? You have fun. Studying Torah, I have fun because everyone looks at me and everyone says, oh, you're the best. So I could either try out to become a major league you know, baseball player and hit the home run in the World Series and be carried off on their shoulders like a hero. Or I could be the guy who prays longest in synagogue and everyone looks at me like, oh, you're the best. Same ego trip. Same ego trip. This is not a knock against... Baseball players are people that dive in the Amida at length because they're sincere. This is not, I'm not trying to tear anything down. On the contrary, the whole purpose is to understand the value in sincerity. That when it's ego, then it's all about me. Then I'm really praying to myself. God's, God is... God is what we would call collateral damage in this. Right? God is like a drive-by. God is collateral damage. 
I'm praying for me, for ego, for people to look at me. I'm studying to be a scholar, to be respected. Ego, it's, I can't take blame because if I take blame, then people are going to say, you're not perfect, but I have to be perfect because that's why I'm doing this in the first place that everyone says I'm perfect. So when something wrong happens, I have to shift blame. Oh, it wasn't me because I'm perfect. Obviously, that whole game is ridiculous. The person who's sincere, the person who doesn't know what they're saying, doesn't understand the significance, doesn't have the meditation, doesn't have the respect, but does it because, because of God. That's prayer. That's connection. Well, both are connection. The first one is connecting to self. The second is connecting with God. So what's the point? You know what the point is to me? The point that I take from this is ego. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, the value of simplicity versus uh, um, simplicity versus sophistication. Sure, that's that's the whole class. That's what we talked about. I'm not going to repeat that again. It's the whole class, from beginning to end, was that was that theme. But what it comes down to at the core is ego. Is this simple question in any anything that we're doing? Is this about me? Is it about God? You want to say it in more I don't know new agey terms. Is this my lower self? Is this my higher self? Same thing. Is this for me or is this for God? It's kind of either, it's usually one or the other. If I say it's for both, then I have to really be honest. How much of that is me? Am I just saying God? By the way, it doesn't mean, right, if we're not perfectly authentic, then we should stop doing a mitzvah, stop studying Torah, stop praying. That doesn't... Of course, keep, keep on doing the good things. But the goal here is, what's the goal? Look, this text, today's text, is demanding of us something. It's asking of us to do something. And what's the ask? This, we were just asked to do something today. It's not philosophy. Today is not philosophy. Oh, I understand the concept, the difference between the sophisticated and the, sim- and the simple person. It's not a philosophy. It's demanding. It's asking of us. Today's class is a fabrengen, straight up a fabrengen. It's asking of us something. And you know what the ask is? Let's be, for the next mitzvah that we do, or the next time we pray, let's think a little bit more about God and a little less about ourselves. Let's make it less about us and more about God, more about truth, more about purpose. In our next conversation with another person, let's do more listening and less talking. Let's make it more about them and less about us. There are unlimited applications. Today's class is a fabrengen. Fabrengen means a gathering of souls, gathering of people to inspire and encourage, but ultimately to demand, not in a demand, not in a negative way, but demand is more than inspire. Inspire is like uh, inspiration, uh, but then, then it's gone. Demand means there's a practical application. Let's, let's move there. So, in summation, in summation, um, today we learned about two modalities. I, I'm going to say that he pushed them to the extremes to bring out the point, obviously. No one exists in the caricature of these archetypes. I can't say no one, but the suggestion is not that you and I are in one of these categories, you know, we're stuck here or there. We're in the middle somewhere. He's highlighting the gulf 
that exists between. You have the person who, by all accounts, is the studious one studying Torah and meditating and praying, and everyone's looking up to them, but at the end of the day, there's ego. And the ego manifests itself that no, when no one knows in the patting on the shoulder, it manifests itself as everyone will know when that person makes a mistake but can't accept it. That's when people see the true colors. That's when you see. If somebody can't accept responsibility, then you know who you're dealing with. You can't. You can't say, I'm sorry. You can't say, I'm wrong. They say, I'm sorry are the hardest two words to say. If we were simple, we would ask the question, why? If you did something wrong, just say, I'm sorry. Why is it complicated? Well, you don't understand. It's cut. Uh, first of all, trust me, I do understand. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand very well why I'm sorry is hard. But from a simple perspective, it's because of the ego. That's the bottom line. So the path of sophistication, the, the extreme of that, at least the way we portrayed it, is the guy who's doing all the right things, but it's all about him. And it's manifest. You could see it at the end of the day. And then you have the person on the other extreme. Knows nothing. Doesn't understand. Feels bad. Is humiliated. Am I saying that there's anybody that's actually in this category? Not necessarily. But it's, it's the other side. The other extreme. And that person, they are really connected. And if something goes wrong, they know. No one else to blame. Overcoming folly. It's all about understanding what the folly is. The folly today is ego couched as piety. It's serving ourselves under the guise of serving God. Again, Talmud says, Do it for the wrong reasons because eventually do it for the right reasons. But we got to know what's, where we're going. Today it was an aspirational class. We should aspire. I told you before, the greatest scholars, mystics would say, I aspire to pray like a child. That's the aspiration. That our prayers should be as pure as a child. Thank you for joining me today for Torah Studies. May all of our efforts be sincere. And may we never be too big to own who we are. We're human beings walking this earth, doing the best we can, all of us with our limitations. To pretend that we're perfect, the Rebbe Rashab once told someone, someone who thinks they're fooling everyone else is a fool. Yeah? And if you think that you're fooling everyone else, so then you're the biggest fool, because all you did was fool a fool. I hope that makes sense, right? And to fool a fool is no big deal. That's what he says. And to fool a fool, right, to think that you fixed it is, is foolish. But, but you think it, so you think you got everyone fooled, so that to fool a fool is nishken, nishken kunz, he said. Nishken kunz. There's no, it's not a trick. You don't, it's no, there's no hack to fool a fool. Fool a fool makes sense. So we don't, let's not be foolish. Let's know who we are, limitations, and be sincere. Living life sincerely means that we can see the beauty in the other person. That's beautiful, to see the beauty in the other person. They don't have to measure up to any random status for us to honor them. They're beautiful as they are. That's beautiful. If 
I can look someone in the eye and see their beauty, not because of how much they know, how much they study, how long they prayed. It's not about any, oh, wait, wh- wh- where do you rank? And now I like you. No, 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 no. If, I, if I'm authentic, I can see you authentic. And I can honor you. It's a game changer. It's a game, absolute game changer. All right. Thank you for joining me today. I hope this gets your week started on a, on a healthy, positive, inspiring foot. And uh, may we all honor ourselves and the other in, in the real way, with humility and sincerity. All right. Thank you very much. Beautiful class. Pleasure. Beautiful. Pleasure. Thank you. Always Thank great to you. see you. Always great to see all of you. All right. Have a wonderful week. Stay tuned for all the stuff coming up. So if you want some sophistication, we're going to do meditations next week. Meditation from Sinai. Join us. You will love this class. And then you can even be the one with the meditations to still be simple. That's going to be yeah, You'll be able to unlock that level. All right. We'll see you guys soon. Have a wonderful week. And we'll see you before the end of the week, certainly with more Torah study. All right. Take care. Shavu Tov. Bye. Shavu Tov.